You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we explore digital culture, media, technology, and memes, featuring critical and empowering conversations with experts at the forefront of our digital moment. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is Dr. Jamie Cohen. Let's explore the social history of the internet. This week, we're thrilled to welcome Washington Post tech columnist and author of the new book, Extremely Online, Taylor Lorenz. Taylor and Jamie dive into a critical social history of the internet, from the longstanding impact of mommy bloggers to the influence of next new networks, to how Vine influenced the current social media landscape, and why it doesn't get enough credit. Ultimately, Jamie and Taylor explain why we should remain optimistic about technology, even in the face of what may feel like overwhelming obstacles. Now, here's today's conversation with author of Extremely Online, Taylor Lorenz. Taylor, thank you so much for being here to talk about your book, Extremely Online, The Untold Story of Fame, Influence, and Power on the Internet. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's, it's a real honor to have you here. And you obviously, you really bring a, a light to the public about what internet culture is and how that overlaps with our existing culture. And I think that's something that shouldn't be hidden. I don't think people should consider the internet a separate place. So I think your work really helps us like read it as these are things that are happening all around us all the time. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I feel the same way. I think the internet is basically default reality at this point. Yeah, seriously, yes. So to give some background, this has been what I've taught for the last one and a half decades. I started studying YouTube in 2006 and I, st I founded a new media major in 2013 and internet studies at that time was just like, they thought it was like cats on skateboards. You know, they didn't, they didn't really understand like why I was doing something where you had to read the internet critically. And I was like, it's a shame that you're not going to know for some time how much an effect this has on everything around us. And your book illuminates this history that and really is the untold story, because as far as I know, no one has published this history in this way, and this, this way of explaining how these uh, events that occurred from about 2006 to present really are what shape our current environment and how a lot of the things that happened at that time became locked in. And I think the platforms, I want to talk to you a bunch about how the platforms reacted to these things, because I think the users have so much control over how the internet actually operates, but the platforms took all the credit. And I think your book really clears that. So as an internet culture writer, why partake in a book? Why is this an important piece of writing that has to be out there? Why do we have to tell this untold story? Yeah, well, I've grew up um, writing for blogs and digital media sites. And after Mike.com shut down in 2018, briefly before it sort of sold the IP to Bustle, a bunch of the links broke, our author pages broke, and I couldn't access my old stories. They ended up fixing it. But this is actually happening all over. There's all these websites that I used to write for um, in the early 2010s that have some of my first bylines. Actually, the website that gave me my first byline doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, even my stories on the Daily Dot, I'm constantly worried that something will happen to them. So I just wanted to write something that would last that people could reference, because I feel like there's so much of what we understand as internet history is actually just corporate narratives from tech companies. And it wasn't how it actually happened. You were there too, you know, like these things emerge actually a lot. I mean, in just more messy and, and interesting and incredible ways. And there were so many people that have been completely written out of history, especially women. I mean, there's a lot of women in my book. I think women built the whole, what men now like to call the creator economy. And um, yeah, so I just thought, well, who else is going to write it? I don't know. I'll, I'll do it because I want people to have it. And it, it's important. I, it's good you said that about how corporate history takes over. There's kind of this urban legend that I've been working with 
working on a while with the band OK Go and how they released their treadmills video on YouTube and they went viral and they went like amazing. But the record company was so pissed. They were like, don't put your stuff on YouTube. It's a garbage site. And then their following video, they put it on YouTube and it went really well. And on In USA Today, a newspaper article says this is the greatest viral campaign we've ever come up with. And the record company takes credit for these, these user-based things. And so to go on your second note, you start the book with these stories of women and how they created the influencer economy and the creator economy, specifically the, the story of Heather Armstrong, and uh, who recently died by suicide. And this story is sad now, now that we hear this whole long run, but it was really sad all along that this, the mommy blogger is kind of like this model that was invented by the users. You, you make a good connection that I really love between new media and the early aughts and how social media, reality TV and mommy bloggers are kind of like twisting between those. What, what did that mean to fame at the time? Yeah. I mean, I just think the aughts were this really fascinating time in culture because fame was being reinvented in so many ways. You had this boom, absolute explosion in reality television. Um, due to a lot of all these cable channels coming up and, and the need for programming and the writer's strike and all these things that sort of coalesced to create this reality TV explosion, which really lowered the bar for fame um, and changed people's understanding of fame because suddenly you saw, quote unquote, real people on TV. And um, you didn't have to be like a famous actress or whatever to be on TV. You could be on a reality show. So it made TV fame more accessible. And then you had the internet also sort of disrupting fame with the rise of MySpace. And you had these cult personalities, building fandoms on the internet. You saw sort of like bands starting to get traction that might have not previously gotten traction because they were MySpace stars. And then you had mommy bloggers come into all of it where, I mean, mommy bloggers, and that name is so fraught and kind of misogynistic. Some women really have embraced it. Some women still despise it. You know, they were the first group of users um, to really post about their lives and, and commodify themselves at scale and kind of monetize themselves. Like they really really trailblazed the entire, like what we now think of influencer culture, like they laid the groundwork for all of that. And I think a lot of people think of the content creator industry starting with YouTubers maybe because that's, you know, we still have YouTubers today and there's this sort of like modern corollary, but it started with with moms and with, with mothers who were shut out of traditional jobs and traditional employment and who were fighting back against, you know, traditional media and all the sort of sexist stuff, like coverage of motherhood and stuff and building their own personal brands, which as you re will read about in my book, like they suffered, you know, greatly for that. Like the traditional media just villainized them and people on the internet went crazy when moms, you know, started monetizing their lives because it was this notion of like motherhood as this sacred thing. And, you know, you're exploiting your children by putting ads on your blog. First, I, I agree with you wholly because it's like there's this misogynist based into most of our media systems, especially in the early aughts. I mean, what most people won't remember, what I often remind my students is like, in the early aughts, like there were still Girls Gone Wild commercials on TV. Like they were just being aired and like kids can watch that. And and it was built in. It was almost like this, this built in dislike for women. So when women took control, even in reality TV, like the idea of the reality television star was a new thing. Watching someone take ownership of their character. And I, I use that term importantly here because I think what Julia Allison and Heather Armstrong figured out was that they're performative. They figured out how to create a new version of themselves. And I think that that anticipates like what would later cause the Gamergate error too, like this, this empowerment of women that they were able to control it. So 
Why is it important for younger people who are now in, the, in a newer place, but like in this return to office environment, why is it important for them to get a sense of what these origin stories are? Yeah, well, I think I, I really think it's so important to understand the history of it so that we can, first of all, recognize that a lot of these problems are not new, despite what tech companies would like us to think that, oh, these things are unsolvable or these are these are new problems. And we're still we, we haven't had enough time to figure out the solution. It's like some of this stuff has been percolating on the Internet for 20 years. And even the earliest social platforms were dealing with these issues. So it's not an excuse. But also to understand just, I mean, I just think it's really under, important to understand history. If you want to build the products of the future, or you want to figure out sort of like where we should go from here or, or just better understand the ecosystem. Like people ask, like, why should you, why should you know the history of this, these things? Because they're shaping culture today. And if you have a misunderstanding of it and you think that Mr. Beast invented all of this, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna have a totally wrong understanding of the industry. Yes. Yeah. And that's, again, a bit, the big compliment to book writers in general is it provides a context that is not available in many other situations. I, I, like I said, the reason I'd assign this to my students is because this is the stuff that takes me days to contextualize. And oftentimes it's like, well, is there a book for this? Well, now there is. <laughs> and that's important because it, it is, and this is a shame, you bring up a point about young people learning, is watching Mr. Beast do his take on um, Squid Game. It, they they came to that content through Mr. Beast, not through its original material. And it's Mr. Beast does hold a very important place. Criticizing Mr. Beast in class is the closest I get to getting canceled. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's a fascinating figure. I think anyone that's creating media and art on the internet deserves sort of criticism, myself included. And and again, Mr. Beast is, I mean, what he's done, I think he's sort of like, I mean, he's one of those people who grew up in immersed in this online environment that I describe in the book. And it's kind of what formed him and shaped him. He talks about the prank era of YouTube and his own kind of journey through that himself, you know, often. So I think it's important, again, to like understand where all this comes from and how it all evolved so that we can understand people like Mr. Beast, you know? Yeah, of course. So I want to switch a little bit here to a great part of the book that I think most people don't know about. And I'm really happy you have it in there. Is this period of time where Next New Networks had like an insurgency inside of like YouTube. I know Tim Shea. Uh, I was part of the origin stories of um, web television stuff with Tilzy.tv that became TubeFilter with Josh Josh Cohen run, running it now and the origin of the Streamy Awards and the IAW TV. And I was in that office, the, the Tim Shea's office for a while, the Next New Networks, and it was nuts. There was a period of time where things were chaotic and lively and people were moving around. And, and the what was interesting is that there was, it felt experimental in a way that we never had in, in media beforehand. People couldn't really play with these things. Next New Networks was playing with annotations so you could click them and play through to other videos. And YouTube was learning how to use their own platform. And that to me was nuts because it's like the corporation takes the credit for the uh, advancements, but it's really these these homegrown, ground up experimenters who are really, really making it. Yeah. And I, I, well, I just, and I think like that's something that's this theme throughout my book. These like users or these sort of like adjacent sort of entrepreneurial people that are creative and weird and outside of Silicon Valley that came up with so much of the innovation in this area. And again, the corporation always takes the credit and these people are kind of written out and then it becomes this corporate narrative. And I, yeah, I was so happy to cover Next New because they, it's just crazy crazy how Tim Shea has been in the middle of like so much. And then also Vanessa Pappas from that team ended up becoming CEO of TikTok. So yeah, he's, he's barely like, it's sad because he's like barely a footnote in Ben Smith's book. Um, 
you kind of just hear, oh, Jonah Peretti's roommate. And it's like, he had a huge role, <laughs> you know? It's, no, Tim is an yeah. icon. Also, Tim is behind, like, Tim works for Duolingo yeah, now, which is arguably, like, the most, like, iconic brand on the internet. It's just, like, he's such a... He's such an influential internet figure, but it's people like that that I want to get sort of their due. And I tried to talk about in the, people like that in my book where it's like these kind of adjacent people that, okay, maybe they're not the Silicon Valley CEOs, but they're fascinating and creative and entrepreneurial and genius. So when we were in that period that everybody was like getting together, I remember there was web TV meetups and IRL things and RaffleCon and social yes. media and Halloween. Yes. Do, do you think from your research and even from being there or looking around at that time, do you feel like people thought that was sustainable? Like, do you think that they thought this was going, I, from where I was standing at that time, I was like, this is the future. And it, it just didn't hold up in many ways. Like, yeah. <laughs> what do you think happened? <laughs> it's so funny. I know I was looking back. I mean, so much of this book is very much Although I don't put myself in my work, it's very much like my own personal history with the internet. I have, I owe everything in my life to Tumblr, um, which is where I got kind of discovered. And yeah, I mean, it, it felt so exciting and it felt like we were going to take over the world and everything. And then, of course, this like hammer comes down of like capitalism and, you know, Silicon Valley and all this bad stuff, you know, it starts to go off the rails. But that's just kind of how life goes. You know, I think with any movement, it's like there's this idealism and then there's the reality that hits and but it ends up always kind of somewhere in the middle. I actually do think it was successful. It did take over not in the way that we thought. I mean, I read Ben Smith's book too. And it's just so funny, because it's like we did have a digital media revolution, but it's not Gawker, you know, or whatever Vox.com, although Vox is still thriving. But like, you know, it didn't it didn't end up what we thought it would be It ended up something to be kind of something different, like what Vox is now, right? It's this like podcast media behemoth and conglomerate. And they've got all these things. And it, but it's not just like I think we originally thought like oh I'll start a blog and I'll become the New York Times and it's like well that's not exactly how it went. That see that's like a note that I always have which is that unfortunately our structure in the West is like we we're a very television and newspaper oriented society so everything we do is like how can we make it that and it's like no lean into the thing that it isn't, you know, like, and that's because Silicon Valley sitting there, like their traps are open. They're waiting for people to walk into their trap. And I think that unfortunately, it's like, sometimes it's not sustainable because it's, this is expensive. You know, I think one thing your, your book points to is the amount of labor that goes into all of this work, you know, and that's something that is lighted on all stories. You only see the product and you don't see how much work goes into this. So I want to talk about my my favorite part because it's my favorite app, Vine to YouTube to the adpocalypse. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because Vine, RIP, uh, it was my favorite app. And I've, I've always had this sentence that Vine was a sentence in the grammar of video. And that grammar, learning that grammar, and Vine's accessibility as a short form platform really didn't just shape Vine, but actually shapes today. Everything we do as video creators has to harken back to the first sentences that were written on Vine and the people that kind of form that thing. Because if you can make it in six seconds, you can make it, you know? And it was it's interesting. I actually didn't know about all the hype houses that Viners had because it's kind of like we get so enthralled by TikTok hype houses, we forget that they had them. And so you have this great quote, their fans treated them like stars. So why not act like stars? That was an interesting, was that a turning point, do you think, when they started to understand their celebrity? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, you have to think of the YouTubers before them, like the original, you know, the first content house, the first modern sort of social media content house 
announce the station in 2009, like which became Maker. Like those people were outcasts. They were kind of weirdos. The people that were you big on YouTube originally were just not young, hot, sort of like consumer friendly, like marketable people. They were a lot of like kind of weird, creative, like alternative, you know, type people. And so with Vine, like Vine kind of hit at this moment, right when this like younger generation of millennials was kind of coming of age and embracing it. And so you saw people like Logan Paul take off. You saw you saw these like kind of people that were like very marketable and very sort of like attractive, especially to other young girls. You saw MagCon, obviously. And like, so they were able to become celebrities. Like they were able to kind of access this, this like mainstream almost fame, although it wasn't so recognized as mainstream at the time. But like, you know, this mass fame, they, they had this like teeny bopper energy, I guess, um, that a lot of early YouTubers didn't have. And so they could do the mall tours, you know, they could go come to the People magazine offices, you know, like they were just sort of more polished. What, what was that magazine with like with Jonathan Taylor Thomas was always on it, it was on those teeny bottles. Tiger Bop. Beat. Tiger Beat. <laughs> they, so these characters kind of like would have been on a Tiger Beat. If they, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which the of course the modern equivalent of that is famous birthdays and getting the famous birthdays video, which I talk about famous birthdays and the role they played in this too. That, it's it's incredible because that, we forget because everything that's happened from 2016 is so overwhelming that like it crushes that time. But like there's so many stories to be told. I went to uh, StreamCon, which was like a kind of an offshoot in uh, at Jacob Javits Center. Of course, I was there. You were there? Nasty. I covered it live <laughs> for People Magazine and Entertainment Weekly. I interviewed everyone at StreamCon and I was running the People Magazine Vine account. So I made all the Viners do collabs with me. Yes, <laughs> it's still on the web somewhere. <laughs> uh, like academically paneled or moderated two panels. And one was with Cola Brandt, Ali Cat, and Alex James. And Alex it was, James. Oh I know, God. but it's been so interesting to watch what has happened since and we're not going into their stories in the present but it's i mean you refer to ali cat and how she spread her work out and yeah. and she continues to do so it is interesting that these type of events meant like it was a locus of energy like everybody knew so then here's the point that you keep bringing up which is important when vine collapsed you write vine out of the way rival tech companies aggressively courted top creators youtube and instagram opened their pocketbooks as did snapchat musically and you know so these other platforms became the beneficiaries of the grammar they adopted a whole new platform into them it's like i don't think we in the present understand how much that is shaped and like i like to use that term locked in when you make content now you're using their content that to me was interesting because like there's not much credit given to that in a mainstream area like it's just not a really a, a well-known thing and it, why do you think we don't talk about that that often jamie my first book idea which nobody wanted but i tried to sell in 2018 was a book on vine and vine's lasting impact on the internet because i had so much unreported stuff on vine i could still write an entire book on vine i wrote i mean sixty thousand words actually just about vine like i could write so much more it's so you're so 100% correct. Just like it's la it, it's impact on everything. And also it's the way it died and kind of imploded so spectacularly and in such a short time period. It's kind of like what's happening to Twitter, except it's a, it's a totally different landscape now. But it's sort of similar. Like you almost never get this sort of abrupt end. You usually get like the MySpace where it sort of like fades out or Facebook where it sort of fades into irrelevance, right? Like, but that very quick exodus of all those Viners really, yeah, it's like they went out into the world and kind of reshaped all these other platforms right and it is some of the some of the stories ended up being sad yeah like, uh, the american meme focuses on 
Brittany Furlon as one of the characters and seeing her kind of like have this weird withdrawal from Vine yeah. was was very interesting. And I, I get it. I, I remember watching Viners create Vine content and it's like they would take like 20 takes, but it was like it would occupy their day. You know, it, they, that was their day. And then all of a sudden nothing. And so it, it, it became interesting. But I think the grammar for some yeah. <laughs> didn't really translate. Like, And so it, mainstream, which, you know, like is the way we like the majority of people get their information about the Internet, likes to focus on all the bad news. Like they like to hear like all the scandals. And what followed is a series of scandals, the apocalypse, Elsa Gate and Logan Paul. Does that skew the way that people look at the Internet still? Do they people want to like say, oh, it's oh, that's the place that. The, the bad things happen when it doesn't focus on like how much beauty was created at that time too. Uh, yes, Jamie, you're speaking to me. I'm such a tech optimist and I love the internet <laughs> and I, yeah, I'm like a sucker and I, it's so funny when I was having the marketing meetings about this book, they were like, oh, it's a pretty positive tech book, you know, compared to like <laughs> some of the others where it's like democracy is dying. But yeah, I mean, I think 2017 was this pivotal year because it was this year also when Gen Z sort of started to exert their influence on the internet. I wrote a bunch of stories that year, actually one big story about Gen Z consultants and the amount of money they started to make in 2017 because there was this growing interest in, in young people. And Gen Z, for them, especially like they truly grew up in this, that this is their default media environment. So these YouTubers were getting bigger, stories were breaking through to the mainstream, and you had this audience of internet users that was suddenly online that wanted to consume news and, and was talking about these, like these things were breaking, like the Tide Pod meme or whatever, like these things just started to break through into the mainstream often to the terror of parents, of course, who like, you know, took everything so seriously and had a lot of freakouts. But I mean, the Elsa Gate should, should have been taken seriously. But I think it was a lot of people's first introduction to influencer culture were sort of like the excesses of influencer culture. There's also just so much in, in the way that people talk about the influencer industry. There's so much misogyny. Like when people talk about influencers, they think of like a beautiful girl on the beach and they use, a, especially older people, they use these negative language, right? Of like, oh, you know, they're just desperate for attention they're a fame whore, you know, it's just, and a lot of that is just misogyny and these misogynistic understanding of what this industry is. What these people are, they're media entrepreneurs. They're building their own little media businesses. That's what people like Logan Paul and content creators are. But And it is sad to see some of my contemporaries, I'm an elder millennial, and so some, some of my friends identify as Gen X. And it makes me sad sometimes to see their heavy criticism. And I'm like, we benefited from such a different time. We graduated before the recession, man. Like, there's just like a different way of growing up. And like, an influencer isn't, it's hard to explain to them like what it means it means to actually do this work and how hard it is. That's again why guess who's getting guess who's getting copies of your book this, this Christmas. Give it to all the boomers <laughs> in your life that need to understand yeah, right, it. Seriously. <laughs> but they I think they do because this is what what's important about books like this is in the in tech history and it reminds me like a bit about the book Digital Babylon from the 1990s um, which is a history of the 1990s chat rooms that were kind of turned into web TV and it was just this very odd book and no one read it because it's like who wants to read about chat rooms now it's fascinating but it creates a, a, a body of evidence that like oh we could at least have this record of what what went on and it really does give some veracity to this material because sometimes to not to knock everything else but sometimes books give that context you know to people and that it helps them one part in here that I think was really important that you recognize a bit is a point about burnout and about how much labor is in this. And there's there's a story that isn't in here, but I don't like telling it either. It's about accountability. Like, who's their boss? Like, I don't think people understand that when they're making this content, they're creating it, but there's nobody, there's no boss to report into. They don't consider it a desk. They don't submit something. They don't file to an editor. They make and they hope. And their audience 
whether that be parasocial or whether that be interactive, is kind of like helping them make it. But if you like the prank culture type of thing, it has to always become more extreme because once the viral hit happens, the audience expects more. On one episode of Casey Neistat, he invites Robert Kinsel on and he, he asks him, what do you do? And he answers, I'm responsible for their livelihoods. And that to me was a sentence that like still sticks with me because what is a livelihood in these terms and how do you make a livelihood without knowing what your accountability is? Yeah. I mean, I think, I, I don't know, it's so hard with the burnout stuff. I, I think there's so many sort of contributing factors and especially back then during that daily vlog era, there was just an enormous amount of pressure. Like I think now people understand you can't post every day and remain sane if you don't have like at least a big team around you, you know, it's really hard. Um, I want, I, I think I get into it like a tiny bit. I can't remember what ended up getting making it in, what didn't make it in. But I am very interested in this sort of like budding labor movement in and, and sort of the various efforts to kind of collectively bargain with these platforms, which have always failed. So uh, the reason why I bring this story up is there's a story that, I, like I said, I don't like telling it in class, but it's the Nassim Agdad story, the woman who shot up YouTube. And she, was look she came to YouTube in San Bruno because she was looking for her boss. And that story is... Like kind of the the point of what happens when you don't know who you're working for and the apocalypse demonetizes you. Who do you who do you ask? There's no HR. No, and and that was actually I I did have that in my original draft of this. I actually covered that shooting um, for the Daily Beast when I was there, and it was crazy because I think it was this example of people kind of just being like, I want to talk to someone, and who I want to talk to the manager basically, and like who's the boss? Right, which you feel like they have a right to. Totally, and I think you're seeing increasingly this like hostility from creators who feel like they don't. I mean, there's so much anger around like Instagram, which has terrible, you know, creator support and stuff like that. Yes, ultimately, it it's like, who's the boss? Your audience is the boss. And these platforms are also sort of like intermediaries to your audience. And so they can be your boss and that they can control access to your audience. But yeah, I mean, I would say you're responsible to both your audience and the platform and you have to kind of please both. And sometimes what pleases your audience is not what pleases the platform. And sometimes what pleases the platform is not what pleases your audience. So it's sort of like this tightrope that you have to walk as a content creator. Yeah. So I want to just move, make sure we end this on a uh, positive note. So I just yeah. <laughs> want to uh, ask you one last thing about the job, basically, and before we move into the last bit about what, what comes next. And you write this amazing sentence about the end of the YouTube golden era. You write, the golden era at YouTube faded to black. The company had fostered creators for a decade. It saw the potential early and developed visionary plan of sharing significant revenue with creators. It did so before there was any revenue, before creator was a word people used. Now that being a creator had not only become potential livelihood, but a dream creator many, YouTube had letting it, had let creating on its platform become extinguishable from every other terrible job. That is such an important point about what it looks like to actually do this as a job. I, I'm wondering, like, to not point at the negatives of this, what comes, like, what has happened since? Like, we're now, if the golden era is over, we're now in a new, I would consider today, a huge rainbow of creativity. The micro niche has started to become come like this ultra expansive space for people to explore content about nothing is coming out and and more and more uh, internet culture writers are appearing that are covering all these different facets so now that we are past this what's the structure we've built how do we use that better yeah well i i still think we need a better structure i think there's actually a much more public understanding of that i mean you see platforms like substack really fighting back against the ad driven model um, which i think can be very toxic on these platforms and you see creators inherently understand that they need to be multi-platform 
platform creators that they need to hedge their bets and not that basically all these platforms could screw you over tomorrow if they change the algorithm or go out of business or something. So I think a lot more people are, are sort of cultivating those direct relationships with their audiences and building businesses that are a little bit more sustainable than what people were building in 2017 and, and earlier. Also, I mean, you just have so many more options. Like I talk about this in sort of towards the end of my book, but the one good thing about the VCs discovering and finally taking this industry seriously in 2021 is like, I mean, they poured money into like some of the dumbest startups I've ever heard, but it also kind of like was this sign of like maturation for the industry. So where you just see a lot more like e-commerce tools that allow anybody to spin, a, spin up like products quickly or merch businesses quickly. And it's easier than ever for, to be a niche content creator and make a living, even though it's very competitive, of course, but you have more and more of these tools. So I think, I think we need to, I mean, I think we're entering into a new generation of social, the social landscape. And so I think we just need better platforms that allow people to monetize better. I think these platforms need to give up cuts of their revenue to creators and allow really facilitate like creator monetization and audience development. How can we build a better system because if VCs have so much power? How how much power do we as the users are able to express into making a better world for future creators? Yeah, so we actually have an enormous amount of power um, as users. And I think if we use it collectively, we can actually have much better systems. And I think you see examples of this every day. It's just that people, you know, people don't always notice it or think about it. But I mean, the one thing that these companies have shown that they will respond to is public pressure. That doesn't mean necessarily going on Twitter and having an outrage campaign, but sustained sort of like campaigns to get certain features implemented have been successful. I mean, this is the reason that Twitter has, you know, the limit conversations tool or whatever, you know, like a lot of moderation, a lot of like safety tools are actually from user pressure. And we also have the ability to leave platforms that aren't serving us. You know, I think right now everyone's looking at Twitter and figuring out what to do. And Twitter's a good platform of this guy that still comes in, has a huge hostility towards creators, has essentially tried to alienate every big creator on the platform. And I think he's going to learn the same lessons as Vine, which is that a lot of creators could get together and leave. Where the power really is. I mean, these these platforms are just blank if the users aren't there, you know, and the advertisers show up because the users are. Exactly. They didn't create these social networks like users. This is, a you know, they've channeled it, but they ultimately it, it is, you know, users do have more power than they think. So. Well, thank you for your time, Taylor, so much. Since Twitter is uh, fading. Where can people find you now? Yeah, don't find me on Twitter. I don't really use that for news anymore. Um, <laughs> me either. Yeah, I'm on TikTok. I have a YouTube now, so subscribe to my YouTube. I'm just at Taylor Lorenz everywhere on threads, Instagram, everywhere else. Excellent. And remember, pre-order the book. It's really important, especially Please. for Christmas gifts. <laughs> Thank Pre-orders you again. are the only thing that matter. And you will love this book. You will love this book. Absolutely. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Digital Void podcast. For full show notes, including links to everything discussed in today's conversation, please click the show description. We'll be back next week with another conversation with AI games designer Reed Berkowitz.